Um, that is a game changer right there. Dang it, Joel, why didn't you tell me about that before, man? <laughs> this is I was thinking about it, but we had already moved on. What are we talking about? light on news topics for this week but i do have some like i don't know in the doc i have pre-topic shit shooting uh category (laughs) here and just got a bunch of fun things to talk about so the first one that i wanted to ask and i've actually wanted to ask you this for uh, a couple weeks how often do you well you're you're pretty you're pretty active in chat right in some of the other hacker chats that we're in um do you use that more than you use social media, do you think? How, and what kind of oh, yeah. role does Hacker Chats <laughs> kind of play in your social life uh, online? Yeah, 100%. I mean, like, Hacker Chats are probably, like, close to 90% of what I, like, wow. my what I would consider, like, my social circles. So, like, most, like, I, I would say 99% of my social circles are, like, online. Most of the people, like, people yeah. that I'm friends with and, like, close, right. closely acquainted with are not people who I know, like, who like live near me, like physically near to me. Um, and then day to day, like the majority of people that I talk with are probably hackers Dude, and hacker chats. I feel like I underuse that substantially because we're in like quite a few little, you know, hacker chats that we've got together with some of the other hackers in our, in the bug bounty community. And like, I feel like I'm kind of a ghost there. Or at least I like, I'll go in there and I'll read it from time to time, but I'm not like interacting quite as much. And I mean, I don't really do that much on social media either, but I feel like, you know, when I'm ready to just like mindlessly scroll, I go to social media and, you know, scroll through Twitter or something like that instead of like going to the hacker chats and reading you know, all you guys kind of just talking. So I think maybe I need to, to switch that around a little bit because whenever I get in there, I see you and the guys getting into some pretty cool stuff and I, I, I want to I get in on that. Yeah, I, I mean, I like to just like converse in there. So I feel like social media is a lot more like posty. So like when I'm using social media, it's more for me to like broadcast like publicly yeah. that I'm doing yeah. something. And if I'm in like the hacker chats, it's more like I'm having private conversations with like people that I trust yeah. a lot more than just like random public I definitely do that for like when I've got a bug and I know someone has some expertise, I'll like DM them in like, you know, one of the Slack channels or like on Discord or something. But like, yeah, just just chilling. I think I think that's I think that's an important part of the hacker community that like, I don't know, I haven't been I, I used to be a lot more religious about reading, you know, all the different channels and stuff like that. But I've just kind of fallen out of it lately since I've been, you know, running a little short on time with the rental property and some other things. So <laughs> That's something yeah, I man. I mean, to. it's really hard to keep up with all of it too. There's like a ton of messages all the time. So oh even gosh. I like sometimes I just like I'll see like a bunch of stuff going on. And I'm like I don't have time I to do it, and I'll this. just mute <laughs> for like an hour. <laughs> yeah. I feel that. Um, solid. the The other thing I had here was okay. Just want to do a, a clarification because we did an episode a while back. Which, by the way, I'm gonna call out our audience on this one. Let me just pull up the statistics real quick. You all said when I put a post on Twitter about what you wanted to see. You said that you wanted to see exclusive techniques and tool releases. And our uh, Rebind Multi-A tool release and browser SSRF uh, 
like episode is like one of the worst performing episodes <laughs> out there. So one, you guys suck. Two, <laughs> I'm glad you didn't listen to it because I actually made a mistake in there that somebody messaged in um, to info at criticalthinkingpodcast.io and corrected me on. Um, this guy, Cyphron, uh, shot me a shot me a message and said, hey, by the way, the um, DNS rebinding attack that we talk about in that episode which if you know if you haven't heard it that that bad boy's episode number nine so go check it out um but i was saying that it mostly on, it works for windows only um because uh, of the way the dns rebinding works like if you're in linux or in mac os it defaults to the private ip address first instead of the um uh, public ip address but um, this guy Cypher messaged me and said, hey, just FYI, um, one, the tool you made is completely redundant <laughs> because NCC group singularity does the same thing. And I was like, okay, you know what? Fine. But, you know, maybe there are some features in there that I have that they don't have or vice versa or whatever. But two, um, we can actually, you can use this attack to hit uh, local host-ish on um, uh, Linux and Mac OS by hitting 0.0.0.0. .0 .0 .0. Um, yeah, so that's pretty cool. I mean, it's, 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 uh, not necessarily something that, you know, is going to get you access to an internal, um, piece there, but it's better than nothing. So definitely check that out. Um, set as the target for that rebind, uh, 0.0.0.0. .0 .0 and you might be able to hit some internal, um, APIs or something like that. If it's sitting behind a reverse proxy. Mm, super interesting. It's, it's very interesting behavior that it would default to like from going zero to zero to zero to, yeah. zero to localist. Exactly. And, and, you know, you'd think with, with Linux and Mac OS, you know, by default checking to see if they have, you know, a private IP address in that DNS resolution, they would also think about 0.0.0.0. But I guess they're not thinking about the reverse proxy sort of situation. Yeah, so. that's super, super interesting. Okay, dude, the other thing I want to talk about, this guy, the flipper. Oh, yeah, one of these? Yeah, oh, you guys, are you serious? You had it sitting right in, yeah, in yeah. your desk, right in front of you too. Yeah, the flipper. Um, have you set this thing up yet? Yeah, man, I've got my. I have a custom firmware on mine. Okay, okay, Joel. All right, <laughs> fine. Um, I just got mine uh, a while back, and I haven't had the chance to play around with it yet. But I feel like this could be helpful for the live hacking event that we're doing starting soon. Um, so I'm gonna I'll get be bringing mine. Yeah, I'm going to get some firmware on this guy. And uh, and hopefully we'll be able to report back how exactly it's working, hitting some uh, Bluetooth protocols. And yeah, it's pretty much only going to be Bluetooth, I think, for this this event that we're going to go after. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I would be surprised if it's doing other stuff, especially in like yeah. the ranges that the flipper is going to do, like sub gigahertz and stuff. Yeah. But it's always possible. I mean, sometimes you'll see stuff using like 433 megahertz. Yep. So that's that's definitely on the list. Um, the the other thing that I want to talk about while we were on the topic of Bluetooth was I've been playing around in prep for this live hacking event. And if for all of you watching on YouTube over my right shoulder there, you can see this <laughs> giant like just hacker one towel thrown over a bunch of things because sitting under there is the like absolute crap ton of devices they sent us for this live hacking event um, that Joel and I are participating in um, coming up towards the end of April. And um, I realized that I had them sitting there on that table you know, right before this we started recording. That may but or I, may not be a giant blurred out square yeah, <laughs> in the video yeah, they see. So yeah, see. exactly. 
Um, hopefully I don't like move my shoulder and like, so something I'm not supposed to show, but, um, yeah, I've been playing. So one of the, one of the devices that we're targeting sort of has uh, a blue tooth, low energy interface. And I've never done any non HTTP related hack. I like once or twice I've done some non HTTP related hacking, you know, mobile aside. And, uh, I started playing around with the better cap, uh, Bluetooth, low energy module. And that thing is fire. Um, real easy to use, really consistent, and I didn't even have to use a, um, I don't know if this is just the Bluetooth chip in my laptop, but I didn't even have to use like uh, the Ubertooth one or anything like that, any external cards, just the, in, you know, the, the Bluetooth chip built into my laptop was able to enumerate the various services that I was going after. So um, definitely, definitely check out BetterCap's uh, Bluetooth low energy module. Yeah, dude, you were showing me that yesterday, and I haven't done a ton of Bluetooth hacking either. I do mainly yeah. either end up on like the network side, or maybe I'll like rip a chip and go into like the source code and stuff. But yeah. um, I had been holding off on buying like an Ubertooth or anything like that for like a while, just because I wasn't really sure what I needed and all mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. And then I saw that recently, a couple months ago, they announced that the Ubertooth one was being like retired, basically. Yeah, um, just as I bought it, of course. <laughs> I, I have it on my wish list for like months and months and months. And I was delete. like, yeah, should I buy this? Should I buy this? Delete. Yeah. So yeah. I did some other some other digging and there were a couple people talking on Reddit and stuff that were mentioning the kinds of stuff that they actually end up using. And mm. they had said that they own the Ubertooth, but for the most part, they don't end up using it a ton. And the basic impression that I got is basically it's like a Bluetooth receiver. That's pretty much like it. <laughs> like, yeah. I, don't, I don't really know what it does that is extra than that so yeah. a lot of people were were, were recommending this um this u100d oh, by cena so this is this is pretty neat um it was like 30 bucks or something it was really not bad and it's apparently it has this crazy crazy range apparently it can go up to like i want to say like 100 meters or a thousand oh meters or gosh, something dude, it's like crazy. it's really crazy um and uh, i was using that yesterday with uh better cap yeah. And it was working great. I can't use it on my Mac like through Docker or anything. For some reason, yeah, I was going I was curious to see if you got that working. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't work with the drivers. They they have a note in it somewhere in the documentation that you can't use the BLE module with like Mac or Windows because it doesn't support like the drivers or, or something like that. I was able to get it to work on my Windows through VirtualBox. So if I run it if I run oh, it really? within an Ubuntu VM and I do USB pass through with the with the adapter, it works. Wait, wait. So, so you, you wait. You, did virtual you box, virtual box on Windows yeah. on your Windows box. You had okay for a second. I thought you, <laughs> I thought you had said that you were on your Mac and then you had a Windows virtual machine <laughs> and then you had a Ubuntu virtual machine on that. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm like, no, no. Joel, what the frick are you no, doing? No, I do. I have a two computer. I have yeah. I have a okay. Mac laptop and a Windows PC. On the Windows PC, I was running Ubuntu within a VirtualBox VM. Okay. And I had the Cena Bluetooth adapter plugged in and passed through over USB. Nice. And then I actually had to compile BetterCap from source Oof. because the one from Apt doesn't have like BLE, the BLE module or whatever for some reason. What so, the heck, really? Yeah, super did weird. Did I do that too? I don't. Maybe I did that a while back. I did. Did you I run it from a Docker it. container? 
No, I didn't. I actually started playing around with it a little bit before when I was attacking a different surface and I didn't get very far and I had to move on to something else. So I might have compiled it from source back when and just had it installed on my laptop. But interesting. Yeah, I have um, that. My laptop runs. I just dual boot Windows and and Ubuntu, and that's always worked really well for me because, like, at the end of the day, I'm running Ubuntu 99% of the time, and then you know that that other one percent of the time is when I'm not at home and want to game, which is yeah. like very very minimal, very minimal time frame. Um, so yeah, that's how I I just plugged it straight into my, or actually my you know my laptop had had a. Uh, had just a built-in Bluetooth chip and just used that. So that worked great. Yeah, I'd imagine that most of the built-in Bluetooth chips probably can work, but it, I think it mostly has to do with the drivers that are installed for like Mac and Windows specifically, like they mentioned, that cause mm. those kinds of problems. So probably just if you have Linux, you can just give it a shot. Like if you have BlueZ and it picks up your Bluetooth chip or whatever, your, your Bluetooth adapter already, then you're probably good to go. Solid. Um, so like I said, we're a little, little, little weak on the news this week. There's only one, one little thing. I don't know if you had anything, but the only thing that I saw was this burp VPS proxy. Did you see that? I did not. This is, I, I saw that you posted it in the doc and that yeah. was the first that I'd heard of it. Yeah. So it's pretty much like it's a burp extension. Um, and I, I should, I mean, the guy on, um, the guy that has it on, on GitHub is De, Demondev. Um, but somebody posted on Twitter too. I, I ought to go find that, that tweet and give him a shout out. But, um, it looks like my favorite type of Burt plugin where it's just like, it does something complex, but all you have to do is just take an API key and plug it in and then just boom, it's done. Right. Yeah, it's probably like so, one API call. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's great. Cause so, you know, what it, what it's doing is, is it supports a bunch of different providers. If it, it supports AWS, DigitalOcean, Linode, and you just drop your API key in there and it'll just spin up. Um, a VPS proxy for burp and go, you know, go out there, spin it up, connect your burp to it. So you're not constantly getting um, banned uh, when you're, when you're performing some testing. So I feel like this is going to be really helpful when you have one of those stupid targets that like bans you every two minutes and doesn't help you get that fixed. Cause that's ridiculous. That's interesting. So it's just for proxying your burp traffic. Yeah. Yeah. It looks like it. Yep. Uses a Sox5 pro- proxy. Okay, very interesting. There is um there's this other this reminds me of a similar tool called Fireprox. Um Yeah, by, but that's that's for like that's like for all of of the that that gives you a URL to hit, right? I don't know. So yeah. so my understanding is that it basically just like uses the um I think it uses Lambda or something yeah, to basically just rotate your IPs so that you're not hitting it from the same IP yeah, for all your different requests. It's not Lambda. What is it? Uh, it's not Lambda, you're right. It's uh, like gateway IP Gateway or something like yeah, that. API gateway. gateway. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, we, we should definitely Yeah, so it uses API there. gateways to, um, to basically give you different IPs for all your requests so that you don't get like a single IP band. I'm not yeah. sure how efficient it is or anything like that, but that also might be a good option instead of having yeah. a whole, have an entire VPS setup, you could basically just have one of these instances and just like hit it, hit it, hit it until yeah. you get IP band and then spin up another instance. Yeah. This, this definitely works well if you've got something like a, a setup where one host is blocking you, you know, specifically, and then you can just spin up a, a fire proxy URL for that specific host and then hit that instead. Um, and you'll, you'll, every request will come from a different IP. 
Um, but if you're trying to attack, you know, a target that has a bunch of different, like, you know, APIs that need to interwork together and stuff like that, then uh, Burp VPS proxy might be better so that all of your traffic is going through, you know, a VPS, and then you can kind of spin it up, spin it down as you get banned along the way. Yeah, yeah, but we'll link to both of those tools uh, down below. Yeah. All right, that's all I had for the for the pre pre topic shit. Want to want to want to dump or dump? Want to dive right into it? Let's do it, man. Let's let's get right into it. Um, so get some water in you, Joel, because you're going to be doing some talking this episode. We are talking about uh, dynamic mobile hacking, specifically with with Frida. Um, this was sort of a a sequel to the other mobile episode that we've got, which was episode number six. Um. So if you haven't seen that, feel free to check that out. There might be some. Um, if you haven't seen that, uh, depending on your mobile knowledge, you might be a little bit lost. But all right, I'm going to set the scene and then we'll jump right in. So cool. what we talked about last time was a lot of the basics of, of mobile stuff. We talked about all the different components, um, intents, activities, you know, just kind of getting the, our, our hands dirty in Android stuff. Um, and so what, what we kind of want to, but that was largely focused on understanding how Android is programmed and how we can read the code, uh, largely talking about static analysis. So in the field of mobile hacking, there's, you know, two primary, and, and correct me if, if I'm missing anything here, Joel, but, you know, there's two primary approaches. There's a static analysis where you, can, you read through the code and you try to identify volumes that way. And then there's a dynamic analysis, which is, um, you know, you're, you're using a tool like Frida or you're actually getting in the app and making stuff happen um, and fi figuring out how the app works that way. Um, and, and so um, the dynamic analysis piece is kind of what I want to focus on today. Um, but, you know, these two should be used in conjunction, right, Joel? Right, right. Yeah. So usually I end up using both whenever I'm doing hacking. Like, I'll probably start with some static analysis, but yeah, you really want to like figure out what's going on within the app. And some of those things are way too complex to try and figure out just by reading source code. And it's just simpler and easier to call it directly or look at what it's doing with Frida. Mm, yeah, for sure. So um, for those of us that aren't aren't familiar with this, so um, dynamic analysis, just give me like a, a brief overview of what that looks like and how we are able even to do that. Yeah, so essentially dynamic analysis is just looking at or maybe modifying or hooking parts of the app while it's running. So it's happening dynamically. It's not based on um, like you're not reading through the source code. You might be to figure out where you're going to set your hooks, but outside of that, it's like you're, it's while the app is running. Nice. So, so the app is running. So we've got the app on a phone or on an emulator, right? Which, what's your go-to in these sort of situations? 99% of the time emulator. The only really? times I end okay. up using a physical device. So like, for example, with the thing that we're working on for this upcoming live hacking event, yeah. I will be using a phone for at least part of it because it uses Bluetooth to mm -hmm. do the setup initialization process. Yeah. And right now, as far as I'm aware, um, there's no way to get like a functioning Bluetooth within the emulator. The like pass through doesn't it doesn't work like that. Yeah. Um, so there's no real easy way to do it. Maybe you could do it on Linux. Maybe you would have a little bit better luck. I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe the one the one time. You see that that phone sitting right I, there. Hey, uh, yeah. So I've already I've already got a uh, I've already got a a um a free script for you. I'll toss it over to you when you whenever you start looking at um at stuff. But okay, cool. so you know we're using ninety nine percent of the time we're using an emulator. Um, what kind of emulator do you normally go to? I I've got two that I'm aware of. I've got Jenny Motion, and then I've also got um 
AVD, Android virtual device thing, the thing that comes bundled with Android Studio. Do you use either of those? Yeah, so I use the one that's bundled with Android Studio. Um, you don't have to get it through Android Studio. You can download it, just the Android SDK, and it's called Emulator. Oh, really? Okay. That, that's like the name of the binary. Um, and you can use it the same way. You can call it. You can like create the AVDs. You can do all that stuff. It's just probably significantly easier to do it through Android Studio, mm-hmm. mainly because Android Studio has the stuff for downloading and managing the SDK packages. Nice. So you can download like the latest Android SDK. You can yeah. download the Google Play image for Android O or whatever, and then you can install that and create your emulator and configure it. And then later on, if you want to run it just using the emulator command, absolutely you can. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I literally every time, it's so annoying if you try to do it through Android Studio because you have to open Android Studio and then you've got to click the little more options button and then you, you click you know the Android virtual devices, whatever, and then it launches up this other thing. So you've got all these windows and if you close any of those windows, then it just closes everything and i'm yeah, like honestly <laughs> uh, i i think it used to be a lot easier back in the yeah. day i think they started to overcomplicate it like recently now if you run an emulator it shows like an integrated like window within within android studio it's no. like it doesn't like pop out anymore so if you run just like emulator at and then like at your like avd or whatever like that's mm. the syntax yeah. um it'll just spawn up a new window like a like a QMU instance and you'll be nice. good to go. Perfect. Yeah, I should do that because I hate having all these windows open at once. And if I close any of them, then it just bloats up my desktop. So okay, yeah. so you've got the you've got the um, you've got the emulator up. So let's say you went and downloaded Android Studio. You've got the AVD um, open AD, uh, AVD select. You know, Pixel Five build build that guy. Now we're rolling um, and we're interacting with that. Uh, virtual device via ADB and then do you normally like do you normally have one of those devices that has access to the Play Store and then just go download the APK or do you normally like pull the APK from somewhere and then like push it to the device using ADB install yeah so it it depends on what I'm doing and Mm. what the situation is I'd say like especially if I'm using a physical device yeah I'll probably just download the APK because Lots of times it's feature gated, so yeah. you might not even be able to download the, an APK that uses BLE if your phone doesn't register as having BLE mm. with the Google Play Store. Yeah. So if you're using some of those like Play Store downloader tools, you might run into issues actually trying to get that APK if you, your device doesn't have like the whatever the compatible features. And I've just found that you have to do it with like a physical device if you want to get it, or you can find it online. Yeah. Yeah. I I um when I was downloading this app. And, and getting installed for the for the LHG. Um, I, I tried to install it on my main phone and then set it up on my main phone. And then there's like some weird incompatibility with my specific device that I have and this version of the app. And it's if you like dig deep into the like release notices on their, their website, it's like, oh, by the way, if you have this and this, then you're just not going to be able to use Bluetooth. And I'm like, ah, I like set <laughs> up crazy. that whole thing. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's a little bit of a, of a pain, but yeah, yeah, I think, I think, uh, I had another, you know, device sitting in my, in my closet or whatever. And is got, it an old device? Working. Yeah, it is. And actually, so I yeah. had to update it a little bit to get it to meet the right, like APK level or something like that. And, uh, and yeah, it was, it was, it was yeah, so process. almost certainly the problem is that it has Bluetooth, but it doesn't have Bluetooth low energy. And so oh, really? it has Bluetooth, but not BLE. And it 
can't talk with ble stuff i've had the same problem with older android devices that i can't use for bluetooth testing anymore because they need ble specifically oh wow yeah Yeah. no this was this was an old old device i've just got like a little like actually it's right here it's like this little it's supposed to be like a little (laughs) uh you know cable management thing yeah yeah. i just have like a little label on it that just i I know exactly is that (laughs) is that from is that from github (laughs) is it from github let me see I, it, we definitely got it at one of the live hacking events. It, yeah. I think it was. Yeah, I think it was from it, GitHub. Actually, yeah. I put it over the... I have the label over the place <laughs> where I got it from, so I have no idea. But, yeah. Yeah, I no. think I have the same one, though. It helps to it helps to have a bunch of, you know, old phones around when you're doing mobile testing, though, because sometimes you'll have those sort of weird incompatibilities, right? I just have a stack of phones in my drawer. Oh it's my it's crazy. <laughs> Let me see your phone drawer. Um, <laughs> uh, so, um, anyway, okay. So we've got the, we've got the app running on an emulator. We've got, um, so then I, you know, you said we're doing this alongside with, with, uh, static analysis. So we're opening up the app in like, so, okay. So also let me, let me ask, wh- refresh my memory. What do you do y- with, uh, Jad? You, you unzip the APK and then you decompile all of the, the DEX files with, with Jad, and then you open that up in VS Code. Is that right? No, not even. I okay. <laughs> use I use APK tool to okay. e- extract uh, basically the decoded resources. Yeah. And the Dex files. Yep. And so now you've got Smalley, right? Not not Dex. Right. And then I use okay. Jadex to only compile source and not not the resources and out put that into the same folder. So like Wait, I feed what? them both the APK. So I feed APK tool to APK to like decompile everything, right? But like not pull out Somali and all that kind of stuff. Okay. And then I use Jadex with the same APK to have it decompile only the source code because I think Jadex also does like resource decoding or something. But I prefer APK tools over that. Mm. And then I'll also feed Jadex the APK and I'll have it output into a fold like the same folder. Gotcha. Like source folder. So, so Jadex, Jadex, if you pass it an APK, then it will go ahead and it, yeah, it does Dexter jar and everything. Yeah. Okay. 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 I was, I was wanting to do it the Joel way when I, I did this last one, I was like, all right, you know what? I'm going to get it together. I'm going to be cool. I'm going to use VS code like Joel and I'm going to like, you know, have yeah, it parse I'll, the I'll whole send things. you the commands that I use yeah. um, and like the specific arguments and stuff. Yeah, but I just, you know, I, I always literally, I just open it all up in Jadex GUI. And, and the search functionality is kind of shit in that, though. So it's like, eh, you know, not you sure know. if that's the right move. But um, it d- gets the job done part of the time. Okay, It's especially nice if you don't want to, like, have it all on your disk, right? Yeah. Like, if you just want to open a jar file or something and you don't want to have to have a million Java files on, yeah. your, on your C drive or whatever, then yeah. you can just use Jadex GUI. Okay, so the setup now is we've got an emulator, we've got the APK loaded onto the emulator, we've got our source code in front of us and VS Code or JADX or whatever we're using, and then um, now we want to start doing some dynamic analysis. One of the most common use cases for dynamic analysis is uh, SSL pinning bypass, right? So yep. talk to me a little bit about how that works, and then you've got a script somewhere, which I will try to find while you're talking, that does universal bypasses right yeah so basically cert pinning like in a nutshell yeah. is base is the device verifying the certificate that is coming back from the server okay so if you think about how proxying works especially for proxying tls or http traffic your burp proxy you your system has trusted that the the ca the burp like 
certificate authority cert, which is going to issue new certificates to sign all your different mm. requests. And because you've trusted it at a system level, it's fine and you can proxy your traffic through Burp. But if you weren't, Chrome would thro- probably be throwing yeah. the, you know, certificate errors. Just by default, so you have to do- certificate pinning settings. Yeah, exactly. Now, by the default... Certificate checking, set, I guess, just certificate validation, right? This isn't right. necessarily pinning. It's just normal certificate validation yeah. over HTTPS. Yeah, this is at like a system level. This sure. is like normally your system is going to check that the cert that's signing the traffic is what it should be and it's a valid cert and it's not self-signed and all that kind of stuff, right? Right, right. So if by default, if you were to like install the certificate on your Android phone, you would probably be able to get like some apps through there. You would run into the same issues you would run onto a PC if you were trying to proxy without or with a certificate. Like for the most part, it would work, but certain apps, a lot of apps, honestly, implement this thing called certificate pinning, which is where inside the app, yeah, inside the app, (laughs) they say, these are the specific, these are the the specific SHA-256 or whatever hash. This is the Mm. specific hash of the certificate that it should be coming back from the server. And if it doesn't have that hash, then reject the request and it'll basically drop the connection and it'll fail. You'll see it in burp. It'll say like, you know, TLS verification failed or certificate uh, verification failed or something like that. And so what you have to do is you have to bypass that verification. You either have to tell it that every certificate is okay, or you just have to remove that verification step entirely. There gotcha. are a couple different like core lo- like HTTP libraries that are okay, very okay, commonly okay. used. So before we go into that, I'm going to try to summarize it like like I was five here, okay? Sure. So by default, HTTPS is the thing that keeps our communication with a server secure, right? And um, the way that that works is by having a certificate presented by the server side um, that says, hey, uh, I am whoever, you know, whoever they're claiming to be. And that certificate is signed by a certificate authority. Um, that's like the the big guy that we all trust saying, hey, uh, you know, this guy really is this guy. And we right. can validate that cryptographically because <laughs> this is a really smart five-year-old we're talking to here. Um, we can validate that. Are you cri- smarter than a fifth grader? <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, um, we can validate that cryptographically um, by using... Uh, like, because our, our device has a set of CAs that we, we trust, and we can tell whether that signature was actually signed by the CA versus by Joe Schmo. And right. so um, that's how normal HTTPS works. Now, when we are installing a device, you know, a certificate, or when we're trying to, you know, see HTTPS traffic on an Android device, we have to install Burp or whatever inter- intermediate proxy you're using, HTTPS certificate their ca certificate on our device to say hey by the way we also trust burp and burp just says hey i'm whoever the heck i want to be and just you know gives you a valid certificate for every every person you know coming through and that is how you can sort of decrypt that traffic as from a middleman perspective right right and again the main distinction between certificate validation and like the standard certificate validation Mm -hmm. and certificate pinning that's happening here is that certificate pinning says specifically only these certificates are allowed for the traffic that I'm trying to send. Like I'm trying to talk to this API, I should only be getting this Mm -hmm. certificate back or from this CA back. And if you're using Burp, that's not going to be the case. So you have to change it at an app level, not at a system level. 
You have to do both, okay. actually. Yeah. So, so what I just explained there was normal certificate validation. Now, we install the Burp certificate on the Android phone. There's a million tutorials out there to do that. Now, the phone trusts Burp, right? Yep. And if, and if um, the app that we're using relies on the phone to do this validation, then we're Gucci. Everything's fine. We can see the traffic. We can decrypt the SSL. It's, it's, it's perfect. But yeah, And you can test that just like go to example.com, like yeah, HTTPS, example.com, yeah. and see if your phone throws a certain error. Okay. So we've got that. But then these tricky developers are going to try to trip us up here by adding an extra layer on top of that and saying, okay, not only are we going to validate the certificates, you know, trust it at the system level or whatever, we're also going to say that if the certificate presented is different than this specific certificate, they, and they put, you know, the hash for that in the code, then freak out and don't send any messages, alert, alert, attackers hacking us, right? Right. Okay, right. solid. So that's, that's SSL certificate pinning. It's a pain in the butt, man. It really is. It, it's a pain in the butt. Um, so yeah, I'm glad we can yeah. figure out how to get past that. Yeah. So you mentioned the script. Um, I talked about this. I did. Uh, I did a long like interview with Ben, mm -hmm. um, the Homsec, and we talked about like mobile hacking and stuff. Mm -hmm. And we also did like a large blog post for Hacker One yeah. about Android hacking. And in that blog post, I linked to this future script. At, I think at the end. Um, and this is basically my go-to script as well. Uh, that's the same script that I use for 99% of apps. Uh, I almost never have an issue with it unless it's a custom implementation of cert pinning somewhere. Um, so basically, it just looks for a lot of the really common certificate pinning libraries that exist out there. Okay, HTTP, um, like the built-in like Android. Trust like, kit, trust manager. Yeah, trust kit. Yeah, exactly. And it okay. hooks like all of them at as basically a low a level as possible. So that, generically speaking, it can hook most cases, and it can stop surpinning in most cases, including at like a system level, or uh, if you're using like the trusted certs XML or whatever, like the new way that they do it with Android. I'm um, reading through the <laughs> script, and <laughs> one of the things here is trusty trust manager is that is yeah, that the, is that you yeah, naming stuff or is that yeah oh it's, it's a trusty trust manager trusty you know? trust manager <laughs> it's very trusty <laughs> oh my gosh lovely okay <laughs> i don't know why that hits me so different right now <laughs> trusty trust manager all right solid so we, we <laughs> we'll link that we'll link that in the in the description um definitely check out joel's script and, and okay so Hopefully, if they're using one of these default, you know, SSL pinning libraries, then you can just run this this free. Okay, so we can just run this free script. We're gonna explain how to do that in a second, or talk a little bit about that. But run this free script, and then SSL pinning should disappear, and boom, you should be able to proxy the traffic, right? Pretty much. Yeah, that's that's what I've been doing with your script for the past couple of years, and it's been great. And I can confirm that it does work. Let's say I'll say ninety percent of the time, you know, because there are some weird, some weird fringe ones out there, which I'll talk about if if we get to the reports section later in this in this conversation. I'm not sure if we will with how long we're going right now, but um, yeah, okay. So now, okay, we we set it all up. Burp certificates installed. You know, we're seeing some traffic go through. You know, in like our normal Android browser, or whatever. You know, if we open up the browser, we go to Google, and it, it it doesn't throw a certificate error. But when we open up the app, it says error connecting to the server. You know, 
is what it says. Okay. Yeah. So we've got, that's a good indicator that there's some SERP pinning there. What's the next step? So if I'm trying to figure out like custom SERP pinning, for example, one of the first places that I'll look. Okay. Is okay. So let's say let's, before we know whether it's, it's custom SERP pinning or not. I mean, do you just go right down the rabbit hole and try to find custom SERP pinning or do you run the free descript in general, you know, right off the bat? And then if it doesn't work, then you try to go find it. Um, yeah, I mean, usually I'll just try it out of the box. Mm -hmm. If it doesn't work, then I'll run my free script. If it still doesn't work, then I assume it's custom pinning. Okay, so so walk me through running the free script. Do we just like, how does that work? Yeah, so Frida involves basically two main parts. There's Frida mm -hmm. server and Frida CLI. So okay. Frida CLI runs on, I'll call it the host. That's like your laptop or your PC or whatever, right? Where where you're like running your scripts from and all sure. that kind of stuff. And then the server runs on the device or on your emulator. Um, so you download free to server from GitHub from their releases. Uh, they have regular releases. You want to download the one that's specifically, it should be like free to dash server dash version dash Android okay, dash. This is the thing I always get wrong. So when I'm downloading that, hold on, let me, let me pull up the, the free to, so I'm going to GitHub, going to Frida, going to releases, right? And then they got this like list of all of these. Yeah, and make sure you expand here. it. Yeah, Click so show more. Frida, so, so if I search for server, there's, there's okay, and then there's specifically, so it says Frida server and then the version, and then we've got Android x86. You want to be risky 86. and share your screen? Oh yeah, hold on, let me see if we I can. We can do that. We have this oh fancy software. No way, this is nuts. Frida. Let me see if I can find the right tab here. There we go. This guy right here, right? Look at that. We are in the next. Wow. We are okay, in the next. That is so hard to read. <laughs> I don't know what I'm saying to say there. This is this is the future. Um, this is the future. Let me just zoom in. So, um, yeah. So, we've got this, right? Free to server. Now, we've got free to, uh, free to server for Android ARM, ARM64, x86, x86-64, all of these. How the heck do we know which one to download and which one to put on our um you know device and it has to be compatible with our actual um frida that's installed on our computer too right so how do we determine that yeah so i always just install the latest version of both and that will remove any of that version okay. confusion whether or not it's compatible and all that kind of stuff just install the latest version of both okay. uh, if if you're ever unsure uh for the architecture it's the same as like with linux so you'd run you name dash a on on the device over ADB, and it'll tell you what the architecture of the device is. Um, if it's like A Arch, or if it's uh, x86, or if it's uh, x86 64, or whatever. Most of the time, you're gonna see either ARM, maybe titled ARM v7, ARM v7L, okay, um, ARM EA, EABI, or you'll see x86, or you'll see ARM 64. Okay, it's and if and if it's most on, most of the time gonna be one of those. If it, you're running it in an emulator. It's normally x86, right? It's normally probably x86-64. Okay, but gotcha. Yeah, it's going to be either x86 or x86-64 unless you're on like a Mac M1 or M2 that has an ARM chip, right? And then cool. it'll... Right. So it's going to be... If you're running it on, a, on an emulator, it's going to be the same architecture as the as your CPU, unless you're explicitly emulating a different architecture. Right. You can Which run you can an do. ARM. Yeah, it's just crazy slow. <laughs> yeah. yeah, okay, gotcha. So you go through the full step and yeah. install Frida on your Frida command line on your computer and Frida server 
on the thing every single time. Your boy is a little bit lazier than Joel. Yeah. And I don't, so I don't do it every time. Yeah. I, I usually just like have it on the device. And yeah. then if it doesn't work, then I'll like update them both. Okay. So I have so, some helper scripts and stuff. Yeah. But yeah. Like I mentioned, there's two steps. There's free to server on the device. Mm-hmm. And then the second part is free to, free to CLI on your computer. So on your host, you're going to use pip and you're going to pip install mm-hmm. free to dash tools. Okay. And that will install the free to CLI nice. on your computer so that you can interface with the free to server that's running on the device. Nice. What I always do, I'll throw this little little tip out there, is I always go to my command line and run Frida dash dash version and then get the version and yeah. then go to the releases and download that version for the server and then throw that on the device so that I don't, you know, have any version mismatches because they don't like that. Um, uh, so, yeah, but that's probably yeah. the better way to do it. <laughs> Yeah. So for on the device, there's a couple like main things that you want to be aware of. Yeah. Um, so the first is generally you want the device to be rooted mm-hmm. for an emulator. You can easily root them with this tool called root AVD. We'll link mm-hmm. it. It's super great. It will basically root the image itself so that you have SU and all that kind of stuff. Uh, you can get root over. You can just SU to get root on ADB and it makes everything super easy. Yeah. Straightforward. Well, okay. So quick question about that. Cause I normally just run ADB. What is it? ADB, ADB root. root. Yeah. Did yeah. I have that automatically installed or what or is that only for images? Are you using like, Getty motion? No, I'm using, um, I'm using AVD. Yeah. So I think that's, that's what gets enabled when you, when you do that, you can, okay. I think you, unless you do ADB root or maybe you can just, a, well, it only ADB does it on some S, of the SU. emulators because like the, on some, on the ones that have like the play store. Oh attached yeah. Yeah. To it. That's what it is. Okay. So you actually can root the ones with the play store. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's what I mean. Yeah. So use root ABD oh. to root the play store images. Yeah. So, so that's a good distinction. There are two, there's like the, the like I'm default builds. Right I think now. they're like, there's yeah. like, I forget what they call it, Google API or something. And yeah, then there's exactly. Play Store yeah. version, right? And so the Play Store versions have Google Play Store services. They have the Play Store app. They have all the Google like built-in like uh, Google app services, all that kind of stuff installed already that lets you download apps. And it's basically like default Android. If you use just the Google APIs one, it's like very, very bare bones. It doesn't have Google Play services. It doesn't have the Google Play Store. doesn't have like any of that kind of stuff. The problem is that a lot of apps rely on Google Play services, so most right. of the time you need that. And it's really hard to install that on just like a stock Google API image. Yeah. They call it a production build, right? So if you were to run a Google Play image, like emulator image, and you were to try to do ADB root, it would say ADB root is not enabled for production builds. And that's because they consider the Google Play build to be a production build. Right. right? So right, you have right. to use root ABD to root that image so that you can have it you can have SU access while you have like Play Store and everything in- enabled. Otherwise, yes, you can run ADB root and then everything you run through ADB will be root by default. Gotcha. Okay. That is that is a tidbit that I did not know that I've struggled with in the past because some of these things really do require the Play Store um, pieces. And if you don't have root, then you can't run Frida very easily. So then I have to go the other route, which we'll talk about later, hopefully if we have time, which is the, um, the patching the APK route. Um, but yeah. before we get down that rabbit hole, so, you know, we get root on the Android device and then we uh, get free to server on there. How do you, do you just normally just, how do you, yeah, how so do you get, get, it get root? I use ADB push. Mm-hmm. Um, so like you download the server on your host, on your computer, and then you yeah. ADB push the file to uh, data local data slash local slash temp. That's okay. the go-to directory. It's mm-hmm. a, 
it's a unique balance on the Android file system because of the way that permissions work across different folders. It's a place where you can set things as executable and execute them nice. and download stuff and you have write permission and it's a temporary folder. So basically some things will stay in there, but it's used by the system for other temp stuff that gets auto removed. So it's kind of a nice place. If you read all the docs, most of the time they'll tell you to put it there. So push it into data local temp. You're going to need to set it executable. So chmod it. Either, uh, I think 755 is what they tell you to do. Mm -hmm. uh, you could probably plus X. That's uh, what I do. But just, yeah, 755 or plus X. And then make sure you disable SE Linux. Uh, SE Linux is enabled by default on Android. It's going to cause problems with like cross process communication, all that kind of stuff mm. that Frida needs to be able to do. So uh, set enforce space zero. That will turn off SE Linux, and you can type get enforce to check what your SE Linux status is. It'll say either enforcing or permissive. Um, so you want it to be permissive. Nice. I, I don't know that Once I've you... ever done that. So maybe I think maybe some of the other images have like some of the images that are not the Play Store images have it disabled by default or something like that for debug purposes or I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure. Like sometimes you run into it more than others, but it, it'll be pretty obvious when it's an SE Linux error and you need to disable mm. it. Gotcha. Okay, so then you've got the server running, you've got the client running. Now the connection. Well, server's not running yet. You, okay. You, so yeah, you need to run the server. So like data slash data slash local slash temp slash Frida server. Okay. The in the newer versions of Frida, there's a dash capital D for daemon mode that runs it mm. in the background automatically. So you, it used to be that you put an ampersand after it and just do it like that as a background process. Now you can just do slash dash capital D and it will run it in daemon mode. It has that built in. And now your Frida server is running. Now, on your host, if you type Frida-ls-devices, you should see your Frida server like instance basically listed there, showing that it's running, it's connected, it sees the device, you're ready to go. Frida-ls-devices. Solid. And that's, that just validates like what, what devices are connected to, to Frida. Yep. Okay. So then you've got your server up. Then you can do the fun stuff. Um, yep. Now you're ready to run the script. So if you're using okay. the cert pinning script, for example, yeah. uh, typically what I would run is Frida-U for USB, mm -hmm. which basically tells it to use like a plugged-in device, not yeah. the host machine. Because you can run Frida like on processes on your host machine. So you want to distinguish, hmm. I want to do this on a connected device. Um, so dash U for USB, and then dash L, and I'll point that to my script path, dash L for load script. And then uh, typically dash f or dash n depending mm -hmm. on whether i'm attaching so da dash f is for spawning a, a new instance of an app it'll launch it and then attach it at the same time versus dash n is for attaching to an existing running instance of an app so if for an example the app crashes on launch if frida's attached which sometimes happens then you might need to launch the app then attach frida to the running instance and you'll be good to go Solid. Okay. I love how you just pulled all that out of your head. I, every single time <laughs> I do this, I'm like getting into, uh, you know, my, my command line and then I'm like typing Frida and then I just press up, 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 up. <laughs> and then, and then inevitably I don't find it. And then I, I resort to, you know, when you're really desperate history, pipe, grep, Frida, you know, and then you can see the whole list. Do you use, so, uh, do you use FCF fuzzy fun? I don't actually. And I, I have, That's really I, good. I have, um, I have, fish I, I use fish as my primary um you know cli um which i love i love fish 
But also, let me say, I a little bit regret it because obviously the syntax is different than Bash, right? So if you do something like yeah. ZSH, it, it's intercompatible. But now all of my scripts that I've been writing for the past you know, couple of years are in Fish, and so uh, if I ever try to like switch computers into like, you know, I, I've seen, you know, we, we all. Uh, surely those. you can chat GPT that. Come on. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's a good idea. That's a good use for it. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, whenever I'm trying to like jump onto a server and trying to like pull down my config, you know, none of my scripts work by default because they're all fish and it's like, oh, what the heck? Yeah. Um, I really like ZSH, but FCF, it's really good. It's called Fuzzy Find FCF. or Fuzzy Finder. And uh, it's basically like a better version of control r like or like yeah. history search yep. on terminal um and huh. it also works for like finding files on your file system if you just type fcf it'll look in your local file system and you can it's like basically fuzzy finding right so you can type like parts of your command you could type like frida and then you could type maybe an app that you've run before or like dash n or something nice. and it'll fuzzy search across the across your commands like not just exact search like how reverse searches um and it's really really good solid i just added that to the notes for the uh for the description that looks super helpful they've got something a little bit similar to that with with fish by default but yeah that seems that seems better um yeah. okay anyways yeah. so joel knows his command line flags i do not know my <laughs> command line flags that's that's the the tldr of that i've run situation. a free descriptor too in my day <laughs> yeah i can see it i can see it um, okay. So we've got the server running. We, so when you say dash F or dash N, you're launching a process. So normally what that looks like is you are giving it the package name, right? For the, for the, um, for yeah, the for launch, APK. you give it the package name and for attach, you give it the app name. That's also a new thing. It used to be that it, it was the package name for both. Um, yeah. if you do Frida dash PS space dash U again, dash U for like yep. USB or connected device then that will list the processes that Frida sees and it'll show you, like if you have a running app, it'll show you mm. the app name, right? It won't show you the package. And then for the rest of them, it should show like the package. So that's kind of how you'll know. Um, but if you want to, that's like one thing that you do need to either look up or be aware of is if you want to spawn an app and you only know the name of the app, you're going to mm -hmm. have to find the package name. Yeah. That's not hard to do, but just be aware. Yeah, no, that, that's that's gotten me recently because I was like, why is this Frida command not working? I copied and pasted from the last time I used Frida and then it was like, yeah, okay. So there's some differentiation there. I love how you are like a walking Frida documentation. I dig that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so we've got it running. We've run the script, um, you know, decrypts the, the, uh, the SSL cert pinning happy day. Now we're able to, you know, use the app. Um, right. We can talk about custom SSL cert pinning implementations. But um, the other thing that I want to go, I want to jump backwards a little bit. So in this situation, this assumes that we are using a rooted device. Um, yep. Because you can't just have other processes hooking into other processes if they're not root, right? So right. Um, what about the situations, Joel, when you cannot use a rooted device? For whatever reason, like the app flips out if you're on a rooted device, um, what is your what is your approach to that? Yeah, so it depends on how they're doing their checks. Okay. Typically, um, we we did mention like you can patch the APK, so yeah. that is an option. Um, there are ways to get Frida within a an APK through patching. Essentially, you put the native uh, a Frida native library into the app. You re-sign the app 
or you edit the Smalley code to load that library, mm -hmm. which will be the same as launching Frida server, but within just that process, mm -hmm. right? So instead of being system-wide Frida, it's I patched this APK to load Frida specifically, and it has Frida, but nothing else does. Um, and then you can attach to it like you would with Frida server, but it's just that single instance of the app. Um, you can do that. Uh, or you can just edit the Smalley code and you can, you know, make changes, recompile it, resign it, install it, run it, and that could be your workflow. It's just a lot slower. It's a lot more tedious. There are definitely cases, I think most often I would say, like banking apps, money apps, those have the most astringent type of security policies that you have to have for device security. So it, like, is the device a secure environment, essentially, like... Uh, mainly for like protecting people's money and identity theft and all that yeah. kind of stuff. Just the types of stuff that you can do through mobile banking apps and mobile money apps nowadays are equivalent to walking into the bank. So they have to be very, very secure about that type of stuff. They want to make sure your phone's not compromised, all that, all that jazz. Right. Yeah. So those are probably where you're going to run into a lot of these issues and they're going to be like complex type of systems that are going to try and stop you from running on a rooted device. They might be using stuff like attestations that are going to be verified on the server side before you even log in. Mm. That is probably going to be the trickiest situation mm. because attestation stuff is implemented at like an OS system level by Google, uh, either through the play integrity app, uh, play integrity API or mm. the um, safety net APIs. Both of those are like really hard to get around and bypass and spoof um, just because of where they're located. They're like lower than Frida. Mm. So, um, and they're like very complex native library driven systems sure. that are hard to intercept. So it's just like, it, it's not an easy task to overcome. However, generally speaking, you'll probably be able to get around most things with either just straight up Frida scripts or manually patching the app. Yeah, that's a good point. So it just if if it's if for example you know you run into a situation where you don't, <laughs> if you run into a situation, Drops them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, if you run into a situation where you are you know the app is like hey, you're rooted. Don't don't do that. You know. Um, I don't know why my app's a cat. <laughs> Your cat um, is a mad cat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Um, but, you know, then we can, the first approach I'd imagine is let's just disable that. So, you know, you go into this, the code um, in VS, VS Code. If you're cool, Jadex, GUI, if you're not. And then um, you, you find the place where that root function, you know, that root check is being done. A lot of times I do that via um, taking the error code and then just kind of working backwards, figuring out what string.xml that that is. And then, you know, figuring out where that string.xml is located in the actual Java code. And then, you know, narrowing down what function is doing this um, this check. And then there's normally a function that just returns a Boolean that's like, uh, you know, is rooted true, is rooted yep. false. And then you can just overwrite that um, with with uh, Frida and, um, you know, change that false to a true or change it to always return, you know, false if it is rooted, you know, that sort of thing. Um, right. And that, in for those of you that, that are a little bit intimidated by that task, if you look at Joel's um, uh, SSL on Pinner script, um, you'll see these functions, uh, these, these actually, 
uh, assignments, variable assignments. I'm gonna I'm looking at the one on line 34 here. Certificate pinner .check .overload .implementation. What he's doing there is he's he's selected the specific certificate pinner class on line 33, uh, OKHTP3.certificate pinner, and then he's selected the check function and selected the overload um, for that because there's multiple check functions depending on the parameters um, that takes a string and list. And then he's taking that implementation and overriding it with this function that he's defined right after there, which is essentially just saying we we intercepted HTTP3 or okay HTTP3 and then um, you know we're just returning saying everything's good, right? So th yeah. that's how easy it is to overwrite functions, just arbitrary functions inside the code. Um, right. Yeah, yeah, so the way that this check works, typically it would throw an exception. Yeah. So that's why you're just doing a return. Right. Typically, the way that I would check is it's a, it's a void return. It doesn't actually return anything. It just executes. And if there's a certificate error, it throws an exception, which, could get, which would get caught by whatever's calling it. Mm. So instead, you just exit out immediately. There's no error, no problem. Keep going. No error, no problem. No error, yep. no problem. No error, no problem. Um. Okay, <laughs> we're we're in a goofy mood today, man. Um, <laughs> okay, so going going back to going back to um, the using Frida on an Android without root. Um, <laughs> there's a uh, article that I wanted to call out. That's like my go-to article for this. That I just like I remember very vividly when I started learning about this. Um, this article by a person called Icos I. K-O-Z. Yep. I, lo I love that guy. Yeah. Um, and so let me let me pull up his Twitter as well. I don't know if it's just iCos. Yeah, it's just iCos. Um, and he does an article called Using Freed on Android Without Root. Very, very, very apt name. Um, yep. And he walks through, you know, the basics of how to do it and, you know, in detail doing exactly what you would what you would need to do. So that one's great. If you really want to understand what's going on, um, I, when I was first learning, I went ahead and manually patched the Smalley code, which is kind of kind of a tricky process, um, but it was good to understand what was happening. And then ever since, I have been using this tool called Objection, um, which I'll also link in the description, uh, an article by NetSpy, N-E-T-S-P-I. Um, and let me just pull that up right here. It's it's written by Cody Wass, um, and it's four ways to bypass Android SSL verification and certificate pinning is the title. Um, and uh, just really good information there on how to use objection and some other ways to get around certificate pinning. So I'll link both of those excellent resources. Um, like Joel said, you probably shouldn't have to do this too much, um, but if you do, um, it's good to be able to do it, and it allows you to get some, around some really some really tricky uh, situations. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Objection is pretty good. Um... It's like, I, I refer to it as kind of a multi-tool. So like multi-tools, mm. if you've ever had a multi-tool, like is like a, the knife version of a multi-tool, it's like, you know, it's pretty good at a lot of things, but it's not going to be the best knife. It's not going to be the best pliers. It's not going to be the best screwdriver, right? So that's where you're going to want to dive into individual tools that really specialize in the specific areas. But as a general all-around tool that can do like a lot of different things, it's really good for that. Yeah. Solid. That makes sense. So check out objection if you're in that sort of situation. Okay. So let me look at the doc real quick because we're we're getting we're getting long here on time. Um, okay. So we have a root detect. Let's say let me give you a hypothetical. We've got a root detection function in there. Um, did did the the flow that I described, you know, tracing it back through the strings and that sort of thing. Did that resound with you? Is there any other tips and tricks you have for like 
finding where the, the functions are in the code that do the thing that you're trying to make not happen. Yeah. So, I mean, what you described is generally the first place I would look. Okay. Like, see, is, there's, is there an error being, like, on the screen that I can search within the app, find a string, mm. find where it's referenced in the code, yeah. trace that back, see where it's thrown, see where what's causing this pinning, et cetera, right? Yeah. Trace, just trace it back from, like, a, a known thing. That is probably the first thing that I would try. If I can't get anywhere with that, I would probably check logcat. Um, yeah, which that's you can the other do one. with ADB logcat. Mm-hmm. There are a couple different flags you can throw on logcat that will let you cert- like filter by specific like a specific app or a specific PID. So you'll only see logs for like just that running app, which makes it a lot cleaner and a lot easier to read and understand what's going on. Um, I'll check logcat because logcat will have it might have an exception thrown. It might have an error message that's yeah. related. Like similarly, the, it might not be shown f- like on the screen, but it might be in the log cat that's showing either a traceback or an exception or some kind of log message that I can also search for in the code. Um, and then if that doesn't work, I'll start searching for generic terms. I'll start searching for pin, pinning, certificate, uh, maybe even like SSL or verification or something like that. And I'll just mm-hmm. look and see. If I still am not finding anything, uh, then... I'm just going to like start digging through package files that yeah. are related to the app. Like, you know, it's like you, you just got to keep going. It's going to get grindy after a certain point. Yeah, I imagine so. And, and um, yeah, that, I mean, most of the time that should get you there. The only other time that I've kind of run into a situation where I was like, oh, I cannot find this function um, is, you know, sometimes those, these functions can be da, 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 da in native libraries, right? Yes. Um, so talk to me a little bit about this concept of native libraries and how it makes our life more difficult as an Android tester. Sure, yeah. So native libraries are basically portions of the Android code base that are written in native C or C++. Mm-hmm. So it's like, uh, say you have this hash signing or mm-hmm. like for a legitimate use case, it would be something that you want to run faster than it can in Java. Sure. Right. Or take advantage of like native C++ level bindings or certain C++ libraries or something like that. You would write it into C++. And then when you build your app, you would get out a .so file, right? Similar to what you have on Linux. It's just like a, a dynamic, like linkable library. Mm-hmm. And it gets loaded from the Java side using system.loadlibrary. And it's it, typically the bindings within the app, within that library so there'll be a, a method called jni on load there's a whole set of methods they're called jni methods java native interface and basically they define like how jni libraries work so when a jni when you call like system.load library it will automatically call jni on load mm. when it loads the jni right okay and so from there a lot of things will happen it'll do some uh, mapping from function names within the C++ to function names within the Java. So you'll see in the Java code, for example, if in the Java code base, you'll see what looks like, this is getting a little technical, you'll see what looks like an abstract class definition. Oh, really? Where okay. it will have functions that are listed, but they have no bodies. And they'll be defined as native within like, you know, native void, whatever, or like native string, right? Is and, that a, and is that a decorator in, in Java? What is that? No, no, no. It's, it's like one of the like precursor keywords that, that says like, you know, where like you put void? like void or oh, like really? public oh, or static, okay. right? It's native, right? Huh. And so you're saying like, this is a native function 
and in your C++, say you had com.example.myclass. Mm-hmm. Sure. And then you had a function called, like, do something. Right. Okay? In C++, your function would be Java underscore com underscore example underscore oh. my class underscore do something. And that's how it knows that's to how- associate the abstract class to the, the implementation, which is in C++. Correct. And the, it has to have like a similar function signature and everything. It'll throw errors if it doesn't. Sure. Um, alternatively, and this is where things also get trickier, is <laughs> if they don't do that, they can do it through JNI onload. There's this thing called register natives. Mm-hmm. Um, and this flew under the radar for me for a while until I, I figured out what it was. And basically, it lets you register a native method to a specific uh, signature, like in the same way that you would name it by that string you can say oh this string should actually be associated with this pointer and call this pointer instead right and so that means that they can obfuscate the native library to like kingdom come they can do whatever they want with it they can hide those strings super super hard like the signature string for example they can have like custom string encoding and decryption that results in that string and then all they have to do, there's, you know, one assembly instruction in there that's calling out and registering the natives and pointing it to that pointer. Oh and you're going to have to figure out which pointer it is or which function is actually doing this stuff. Yeah. There are a couple things that can help with this. Um, I'm blanking on, like, what they are specifically, but there are there are plugins for Ghidra and for Ida that both will help map the JNI calls. So they have basically loaded up the JNI header that has the offsets for like all the structs and then it will rename the references and say oh it's calling on load here or it's calling register natives or it's calling get class um because there's like this is also how you would for instance like if you want to use a java string class you have to do it through jni native bindings Mm -hmm. so you would do like get class and then you get an instance of like a c plus plus pointer that points to that class and it, it you know it's it's Dang, java dude, through that c++ is, it's that like, is a yeah. very convoluted process there okay so i'm gonna try to yeah. i'm gonna try to simplify it um so you know normally the the normal situation is we've got this this class this abstract class and the function names are appropriately named in the native library and then it just kind of shoves those implementations into the abstract class just like you would do you know in normal you know, object-oriented programming. But yeah, then and that's the simplest case. Yeah. And that, that's pretty much the only case that I've run into that I that I could find. Yeah. But also, I was going to talk about this other case that I I uh, I couldn't figure... So maybe, actually, that was what was happening. I should have called you in this scenario because I had this one time, I was like, man, I cannot patch this. And I actually ended up... All I needed to do was change one letter in a header so that I could override it instead of... you know, And I actually ended up literally patching the native library i literally just opened it up in a hex header and like searched for the string and like replaced one of the characters in the string and it changed it and it it worked beautifully but shout out to space raccoon for that awesome idea um but then maybe it could have been the register natives thing that was that was getting me there so that's 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 hella complex um I don't even know what I want yeah, to ask it, it's, here. So, it's so, super dense. Yeah. This is the thing with native libraries is like generally native libraries are like, it, it requires a whole separate skill set, right? Because mm. you have to be familiar with assembly code. You have to be familiar with like pointers and like C++ and like a JNI, which is like a whole other thing. Um, and so it, it does definitely take like a lot of like extra like effort and resources. I wouldn't really recommend unless you need it to like dive into all of that, unless it's something that's really interesting to you. Mm. But it's one of those things that I've 
kind of only like learned out of necessity. Yeah. Um, and it, it's like a very like complex and it's super hard to like reverse engineering and like come at it the other way from. Solid. So I'm looking at this thing here. The only other thing that I wanted to pick your brain on just on my, on my hit list here was like, okay, um, let's say that I, I've had this scenario happen a couple of times where I was like, okay, I found the function I need to overwrite. And like, for some reason, it's not letting me overwrite it in, in Frida. Um, there's, there's this thing, I think, I think I messaged you and I think we came up with the conclusion. Let me see if I can find this app or this, uh, script. yeah, here it is. So what we ended up doing was java.perform and then we put the, the function call inside of it. And then what I ended up doing was having to run set interval, which is a JavaScript function, which runs a function at a set interval, <laughs> very aptly named. Um, and, and then, you know, it would run that function again. And then whenever that function got defined, it would just overwrite it, overwrite it, overwrite it, overwrite it. Why is that happening? And why, why do I have to use this set interval function to overwrite the specific function this is a very specific question yeah so yeah sorry so, about so that, we were talking like, about this yeah. and it was in a native library right yeah the function yeah. yeah so the reason is as i mentioned uh native libraries don't get initialized until you load them so you have to call system.load library in order to initialize the native library okay. within the java context if you don't do that and you try and call it it's going to be like i don't know what you want me to call like mm, it, mm. it doesn't know it has to be loaded up into memory so you essentially had to wait for system.load library to be called by the app before you could hook that function. And that's why you had to keep doing it on a, on a timer until it got loaded up. Once it got loaded up, then you can hook it. Solid. Okay. So the native library had to be loaded up and that wasn't happening till a later point after the Frida script was running. So when the Frida script, there's like a little race condition there, right? When the Frida would run, then it would be like, ah, what the heck? This function doesn't exist. And then afterwards it would get defined. So when I, when I went ahead and stuck it in the, the uh, set interval and put like a try catch statement in there, then it would say like, okay, you know, nope, not there. Nope, not there. Yeah. Yep. They loaded it. Now I'm yep. going to override it. Is that yep, accurate? Exactly. Solid. Yep. Okay, cool. Um, well, actually that leads right quite well into my report. You down to jump into that now? You got anything else you want to say on, on, uh, you know, dynamic? I did. I did have two yeah. things okay. that I, that I wanted to mention. Yeah. Actually, one thing, because I think one of them we mentioned, I think we already talked about proxying over USB with ADB reverse. Yeah, in a different episode. Yeah, I've, I've been yeah, using and that that's all not really the time dynamic. Now, yeah, that's been helpful. Yeah, that, yeah, not really a dynamic hacking thing, but certainly quite useful, especially mm. since we talked about hacking on physical devices. Another yeah. thing with physical devices, and this is the other the other thing, there's a tool that was made by Jenny Motion, uh, or Jenny Mobile, I guess is the company. Uh, it's called uh, Skrcopy, S-C-R-C-P-Y. Um, and it's basically just uh, a tool that lets you display your Android, like a physical device screen. You just plug it in over USB and you can view and control the screen on your computer. So you don't have to like pick up your phone and stuff. It also does like clipboard transferring, which is super nice. Uh, you can just like click and drag stuff. It has the buttons. It's like, it's great. It's like in between Android emulator, but physical device makes it a lot easier for doing a lot Dude. of testing. For those of you listening on the podcast, I'm just sitting here with my jaw dropped right now. This is super cool. So is this yeah, super awesome? Like, it just takes it just mirrors the screen onto your computer and lets you. Dude, that's so yep. helpful. Oh my gosh! And and is it hard to set up? I mean, can I just use this no, with AV no, no. Air, like the the Android Studio? I don't have to use like Jenny Mobile's thing do i no 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 it's like it's a fully separate package they even have here you can get it with app there you love go this. no way really what, yeah. what it, oh my gosh 
apt install skirt copy yeah screen copy i guess is what it's short for but yeah on mac you can use brew um, they have install docs uh, in the readme on their on their repo but yeah it's a super useful tool i i use that like nine times out of ten when i'm using a physical device just because it's a pain to have to like pick it up and have it connected somewhere that i can touch the screen and all that kind of stuff and yeah. all the copy pasting and all that whatever dude that is a game changer right there i'm installing that right now oh my gosh that's going to be real cool okay i i'm putting that in the show notes let me let me get that any of you guys who do mobile hacking on a general or on a uh, normal basis that is oh you got it nice you beat me to it um that is a game changer right there Dang it, Joel, why didn't you tell me about that before, man? This is I was thinking about it, but we had already moved on when we were talking about the physical versus emulator thing. Yeah. And then we moved on to Jadex, and I was like, oh, I'll just write this down. And Dang, <laughs> it was dude. like on my sticky nice. note until the end. Well, I'm glad I, I checked in with you again rather than just jumping right into the reports because that would have missed out on that juicy tidbit. Um, yeah, so, all right. So A to B reverse, that's in episode six. Um, and then, you know, this SCR copy. Yes, Screen copy. Nice. To to display your physical more, device on your on your host. More bangers from Joel, guys. Frick, I love that. Okay. Um, all right. So let me jump into the report for the day. I was looking on HackerOne um Hacktivity stuff, trying to find, you know, a disclosed report that we could kind of talk through with Frida, but there's pretty much nothing. Which was really yeah. surprising to me. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think part of it is that Frida scripts are kind of like special secret sauce a lot of the time. A yeah. lot of people either they have their own script suites or maybe they over time they they have like figured something out and they don't want to just put it in like code basically that anybody could download and know like oh this is how you do that um so i tried to push away from a lot of that like by publishing my cert pinning script and that mm -hmm. kind of stuff that's kind of like a big long-standing problem in my opinion with uh most of like the mobile hacking space is that a lot of it is like secret knowledge that um, yeah. people have like built up over time and they don't really talk about it they just like show the cool results which is really cool but um it doesn't really help build like a strong mobile security community that can like expand and other people can learn all that kind yeah. of stuff so um, i try to be as public as i can about a lot of this stuff yeah dude i definitely appreciate that so thanks for for sharing the sauce there um let me just talk through this report really quickly. Um, so this one was a little bit of an interesting one. Uh, this is a high, um, and uh, this is an ATO on a specific service that I can't name, but there was this um, service where several people would come together and they would help provide care for an, another individual. Um, and uh, the way that this sort service sort of worked is, um, well, it, it was primarily done through an app, um, and that app uh, was using SSL pinning, but it wasn't just using any SSL pinning. It was using custom SSL pinning, which is actually, mm. we didn't get super much into that. So I'm glad we have this report so we can talk through it. So it was using, uh, you know, I fired up Frida through Joel's universal, D, uh, you know, unpin at it. And uh, it, it wasn't allowing me to see the traffic still. I was still seeing in one of the ways you can tell that you're, you're not seeing um, the traffic is if you go to burp and you go to the, let me just pop burp open right now. Yeah, if you go to dashboard and then you go to event log, um, down there it'll say client failed to negotiate a TLS connection. Um, and that will tell you that, you know, cert pinning is, is sort of in place. Um, and, and you also see some stuff in the app as well. Um, and so uh, the... Uh, situation here was that they had a custom uh, serpinning implementation 
and um, there was a function that I'm trying to <laughs> I'm trying to say it without without actually giving away too much of the details. Uh, anyway, there's there's a function called TLS config, um, and uh, it was inside of or there's a class called TLS config, and inside of that was a a function called set verify server. And this was you know so this is a, a classic and it returned a boolean right so this is this is perfect for um, just kind of what we were talking about it's just a it's a simple simple fix you just find that class and find that function and then you just overwrite that function with your own implementation that returns false now here is some big some big brain tips okay um, and this is one of the reasons I, I forgot about this before this is one of the reasons why I do use JADX. GUI as a uh, as my you know GUI of choice for auditing uh, Android apps. Inside of JADX GUI, you can right click on a function and hit copy as Frida snippet, and this will literally take the the function class, take everything, it, just give you this beautiful Frida snippet, and then you can just drop it right into a script and run it, and it will overwrite that function and give you like logs with that function when that function gets called. <coughs> Sorry. That is pretty neat. That's that's pretty freaking cool, right? So I, I did that and um, put that in there, and I was seeing that it, okay, it was getting called, and then I just went ahead and, and overrode it with, um, uh, you know, set false, set to false. Um, so that allowed me to see the traffic for the specific service, which was under under um, uh, audited because of this, uh, you know, custom SSL pinning. And um, when I w went into that, that traffic, I saw one of the functions, there was an impersonate function where these you know, group of people can help this other person do their job um, by you know, impersonating and like, taking over their um, you know, screen or whatever and, and doing the action for them. Um, whenever you see stuff like that, you should, you should, be, you should be hearing the cha-ching from the bounties uh, because that is, that is normally very, very hard to implement properly. And... Um, uh, I was hoping that I could potentially just put in, uh, you know, any user's ID and it would just let me, you know, impersonate that user. Wasn't the case, but it did allow me to put in the ID of somebody on my, like, care team and then get the, get the access token for them. So um, the other people that are kind of working in the same scenario as me to help, you know, this person do their job, this other person do their job, I could take over their accounts. So then we got arbitrary account takeover in that, in that way um, on those accounts. And uh, that was, that resulted in a, in a high uh, vulnerability. And I would never have found it if I hadn't gone through that, those loops to um, get rid of that SSL cert pinning. And I, and I have to say, like, sometimes it can feel really like, uh, I just spent like five hours, you know, trying to say, bypass SSL pinning and stuff like that. But just like we talk about all the time with like getting access to scope or paying the extra 50 bucks to get the premium feature or, you know, getting access to scope that other attackers aren't willing to go through the effort to get access to or aren't willing to pay the money to get access to, that almost always produces amazing results. So um, taking it a little bit further, bypassing that custom SSL pinning implementation, bypassing that root detection, can often land you some pretty sick bounties, even in the HTTP realm. It doesn't necessarily have to be some crazy mobile bug, but it, you know it can also just be an HTTP, you know, REST API bug as well. Yeah, hundred uh, percent. A lot of that security through obscurity stuff happens in the mobile space, just because people don't look at mobile and people don't understand mobile and people don't know how to get past some of the basic security measures that exist on mobile, like cert pinning. And as a result, they just put a lot of really crazy stuff behind that. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So that's cool. the that's the report I had. Um, you got one you want to talk about, Joel? 
Yeah, so this is this is actually my first ever bug. This is the first ever report I created on Hacker no way. One. It was yeah. This is um this was at the H1702 2017, my first live hacking event, my first bug bounty anything, I, and uh one of the targets was Uber, and they were like uh they were one of, they had put up a challenge that they had like a specific couple of challenges, and one of the challenges was to bypass uh the jailbreak detection on their driver app. Mm, and nice. I was like, oh, I can definitely do that. I use free to all the time. Yeah. Uh, that like I could just hook a couple of methods. And so I spent all night <laughs> like I, I hadn't done any like h- hacking ahead of time or anything like because I, I was like super out of the loop on all this stuff. So I just like sat down and I, I just like dug into it. And I wrote up this like crazy long free to script that hooked a bunch of different things. And uh, yeah, I bypassed it. And I actually got to do a show and tell for that. No uh, way. Like my, really? Again, it was my my first live hacking event. I was like. I, I had no idea what was even going on. I was like, <laughs> yeah, so out of it. I so, was so like, what is all this? Who who is this Franz Rosen guy? <laughs> dude, well, congrats because that's. I mean, getting to do a show and tell at your first live hacking event is nuts. Um, that's how you can tell you got some serious. You know, you're in the right place. Um, but yeah, I will say I have seen a couple challenges like that where people will put like, you know, if they have a mobile app and scope, they're like, hey, if you can bypass our root detection, we'll give you, you know, a medium or something like that. And I always eat those up, man. Like I, I, I have. I'll just pull up my. I've got more than this one. I've, yeah, I have. I've got plenty three of highs that I've gotten from from bypassing that type really? of stuff. Wow. Because, yeah, uh, most of the time the problem is that the the checks are on the client side, right? So yeah. like they're very trusting towards what the client is sending, and they just assume that the stuff that if the client has gotten that data, that it's legitimate. And you can either just feed in fake data to the client or you can bypass those checks and make it look legitimate. Um, and then the server will trust a lot of that stuff and you've already proven impact. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, so I've, I've got a couple of, of those. I have never been paid more than a medium for it. Um, but apparently there's highs out there to be gained. And like like Joel said, there's pretty much, you know, it, it's it's almost always possible, right? You know, because there's, there's um, all of this code that's running on the device is in your control if you're running on a rooted device. Um, so you should be able to theoretically go in there, hook the right functions, return the right values and bypass the whole thing. So definitely something to be on the lookout for there. Yeah. Cool. I think that was it for me. Yeah, This was a long episode. I, I know there was a lot of data condensed in here. Um, but yeah, I, I hope that it was helpful. Yeah, for sure, man. It always is. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm looking through here. I think we hit most everything, so that's good. We definitely, we still have so much more to cover in mobile, so there'll definitely be more mobile episodes to come, and, and uh, it seems like you guys really enjoyed the last one. Um, so, yeah, we'll definitely keep those keep those coming at a, at a pace where you can take some time, digest all Consume the wisdom <laughs> that, yeah. that Joel has imparted to us, um, and, yeah, become, become better mobile hackers. So is that the pod? Cool. I think that's the pod. All right, peace. Peace.